You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. This morning, uh, I want to share with you uh, what is maybe one of the most important messages I've ever preached. Um, I, I've been, I think, invited here six, five, six times, Sarah, I think five, six times, and this is the first time I don't have to preach about the Sabbath. And I want to talk about something crazy with you. I want to talk about Jesus. I was 16 years old. Raised in a uh, non-religious household, my parents, uh, both medical physicians, my dad uh, is, uh, is a f- medical, uh, it was a family physician, doctor, my mom is a nurse, and uh, in my early years of uh, being uh, an only child, being in this family, non-religious family, um, I went through a, uh, what one could call an existential crisis around 10 to 16. Um, my parents had gone through a very traumatic divorce when I was about 10 years old. Uh, in my early years, I had experienced a good chunk of uh, trauma, uh, abuse, uh, uh, some really challenging things that had happened as a kid. And when my parents got divorced at 10, uh, I didn't really have a, a sense of what was up and down. And I remember at 16 years old, sitting in my math class in high school, McNary High School, sophomore year, geometry, math class, back of the class. And I overheard these two girls behind me arguing about when Jesus was coming back. They had been reading this book called The Left Behind series and were arguing about which Russian dictator was the Antichrist and why nobody should have a visa card because it secretly had the mark of the beast on it. Given that I'd never heard the story of Jesus, I was quite compelled. I'd never really thought about Jesus in the first place and went home and my dad, who is a Buddhist, had given me his Bible. And I sat in my room uh, at 16 years old, having never read the Bible, and I read, uh, I did this thing, it actually turns out a lot of people do this. Um, I didn't know what to read in the book, so I just sat down in my room and I said, God, if you're real, speak to me. And I I flipped it open. Uh, This is, for some of you, your devotional habits. (laughs) And I said, God, if you're real, speak to me. And I sat for the next two hours in my bedroom and read from front to back the entire book of Leviticus. (laughs) And frankly, was thoroughly creeped out. So I closed my Bible as quick as I could and I said to God, God, you have one more chance. (laughs) And I opened up one more time and I read the text that you read this morning. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up, followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus told them, 
It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I sat in my room, 16 years old, and I had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and it destroyed my life. And for the last 20, 25 years of my life, my world has been shattered. Everything I thought my life was gonna be about, everything I assumed I would be doing with my life, everything was shattered. This morning, I wanna tell you what Jesus did to me and what he's gonna do to you. I want you to see a few things from this text as Jesus calls this man Matthew, uh, the tax collector. The first thing I want you to see is, I want you to see that when you read this text, I just want you to see that Jesus always sees things differently than you do. Always. Jesus does not see the way you see. He sees differently. I, I want you to notice uh, the, the text, the way Mark tells the story. He says, once again, Jesus went out beside a lake. So he's been to this lake before. He probably grew up around this lake. Uh, this would have been maybe a lake uh, Jesus would have uh, fished in as a kid or gone swimming in. He probably didn't do much water skiing, but he probably would have, in his foresight, knowing what was coming, wanted to. He would have walked a lot around this lake. And this one time walking around the lake, he sees a man named Levi. Now, we know Levi as Matthew. He's a tax collector. His job was to essentially oppress. His job was to collect monies unfairly from the Jewish people for the Roman Empire. He would have been a Jew. Uh, just to give you a sense of what we think in terms of the kind, kinds of funds this tax collector would have collected, uh, the average marginal tax rate for a Jew in the first century would have been about 80%. Imagine that. This guy would have been seen as an oppressor. He would have been seen as complicit with Rome. He would have been evil. We know that tax collectors in the first century weren't allowed to go to synagogues. They weren't allowed to worship with their fellow Jews, largely because they were seen as such dirty people. And yet Jesus walks by, as he has a bunch of times, and this time around, he sees somebody. He doesn't see a problem, he sees somebody. Now I find it interesting that the way Mark tells the story, uh, all these large crowds are coming to Jesus, right? So these huge crowds are coming to Jesus. And you would think if Jesus was anything like us, Jesus would care about the size of the crowds. It's been the story of my adult life is getting the kind of therapy and help I need to not live my life based on retweets and likes. Jesus lives his life not in such a way where he is formed by the crowd. In fact, in this case, it almost seems as though Jesus ignores the crowd and sees one guy. The crowds come to Jesus. They're there. He sees them. Mark sees them. But what he sees is not a crowd. Mark sees a man, a person. You know, it, uh, it turns out that when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, you don't see the way other people see you don't see the things that other people see. I'm reminded in Acts chapter two, I'm gonna talk about this on Friday, when the Holy Spirit falls on the early church, the very first thing that happens is Peter goes into Jerusalem and he walks by the temple and there's this guy that's been placed there every day who couldn't move on his own. And Peter comes up to him and says the weirdest thing to an unhoused guy. He says, look at me. That's a weird thing to say to an unhoused person. Hey, look, hey look at me. 
And of course the guy looked at him because nobody had been saying look at me for a long time. So he looks up and Peter looks down at him and he says, you recall, silver or gold I do not have, but what I give you, I give you in the name of Jesus. What's powerful about that story, why in the world would you say look at me? I'm totally convinced Peter said that because that man had spent his life not being looked at and Peter needed him to know that somebody filled with the Spirit saw him. When you are full of the Spirit, when Jesus is leading you, you don't see what other people see. I want you to see this too. I want you to see the way Jesus does dinner. Jesus eats a lot in the Gospels. In fact, when you look at the 40 days between Jesus' death and resurrection and the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, for 40 days, you would think Jesus would do the most important stuff. And he does. And you know what the most repeated thing Jesus does for 40 days is? He eats food. Just meal, meal, meal. Because apparently resurrection makes you hungry. And so he walks around for 40 days. Ghosts don't eat breakfast. Resurrection people eat breakfast. Jesus, for 40 days, walks around and eats. And here Jesus does something really interesting. I find it really interesting that Peter, Jesus says to this man, Matthew, come follow me, come follow me. And you'd think, okay, you're gonna follow Jesus. And then the next line, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Now you didn't laugh at that enough. Because the way Mark tells his story is I, I think what happens, I mean, what a weird transition. Jesus says, come follow me. And all of a sudden I'm eating in my living room. I think what happened and I think what happens with us is we say, Jesus, I'll follow you. You got it. I'm on your team. I'm with you. I love you, Jesus. I want your kingdom. May it come. Amen and amen. And then the next thing you know is you're cutting carrots for Jesus. And he's like, can we do, can we do like some, some chicken or fish or something too? And we're like, well, I guess you're at my house now. You are the Lord of the universe. I should probably do what you want. I think what happens is Jesus says, come, Peter, Matthew says, come follow me. And before you know it, they're walking down the street and Jesus turns to Matthew and he says, hey, 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 you got any food at your place? (laughs) And I think Matthew is like, sure. When you follow Jesus, he is going to invite himself over for dinner. A lot. Now, by the way, you think I'm silly. You go, that's not Bible. Eh, Actually, it is Bible. I want to point out to you that Jesus in the book of Revelation is literally speaking to one of the churches, and he says to the church, church, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who lets me in, I'll come in and dine with them. Jesus loves to invite himself over. He's like every college student I've ever met. Any opportunity to get a home-cooked meal, they'll just say, hey, can I come over? Well, sure, you're paying my bills as a professor, so I don't have a way to say no to you. (laughs) And in reality, it's kind of funny. When you look at Jesus, notice how many times Jesus, notice how many times Jesus borrows people's stuff. I mean, the number of times Jesus says, hey, can I borrow your boat so I can push out a little ways and teach? Hey, can I get, hey, there's gonna be this donkey you're gonna borrow from this guy and you can come in and I'm gonna do Passover. Hey, by the way, I'm gonna die and when you bury me, you're not even gonna put me in my own grave. I'm gonna be put in somebody's grave that's buried. Jesus was literally buried in somebody else's grave. It's hilarious. Jesus is always borrowing stuff. And he's always inviting himself into the parts of my life 
that I would have loved for him to never enter into. (laughs) The reality is, if you are looking for personal space, following Jesus is a very bad option. Because when you follow Jesus, there is no personal space. Your space is his space. I remember when I was a kid, uh, we had these things uh, in elementary school. Uh, some, some of the older people remember this. I don't know if they still do this, but we did these things. Do you remember cubbies? Yeah. Cubbies were so great. Unless you left your t- tuna sandwich in there for like two weeks, and then they were demonic. But other than that, they were awesome. <laughs> cubbies were awesome, right? When you were a kid, you'd go into your cubby, and you put your stuff in the elementary school cubby, and you put your stuff in there, and you, you never worried like people were going to steal your stuff from cubbies. You just put your stuff in your cubbies. You'd, be, you'd go by your day. You'd go recess, math. You didn't care. You didn't worry if people were going to steal your stuff. And then something horrible happens in junior high. <laughs> Aside from puberty. <laughs> you remember what happened in junior high? They gave you lockers. What happened with the lockers? Well, it's the first time in your life you had a lock. And it was so cool because you could put your stuff in there and like no one could touch it and it was yours. And you, but then you started worrying about your stuff. And you know what happens after you get your first locker? You go to high school, they give you an even smaller locker. And then after that, you get a really big locker. It's called an apartment. And then you get an even bigger apartment. It's called a house. And then sometime in your 50s, 60s, they give you a really big locker. It's called a storage facility. And then you get a really big locker. It's called a beach house because you live in Oregon and it's awesome. (laughs) And you have friends that live in Astoria. I know it sounds silly. I'm 41 years old. And it weirds me out how the older I get, the more stuff I own, the more my stuff owns me. And it strikes me, the older that I get, the more and more entitled I think I should be about everything in my life. Well, I've earned this, Jesus. Well, Jesus, this, I've spent years preparing for this. I've got this money set aside. I've got this stuff. Jesus, I've been serving you long enough. Can't I just have a little wiggle room to do my stuff? And I need to say to you, there are no lockers in the kingdom. It's all cubbies and you don't get to lock up your stuff. In fact, when you go read the gospel, I call it the gospel of Job because the gospel is through the whole thing, although it's in the Old Testament. It's the story of a guy who loses everything. He loses everything. And I love the story of Job because the story of Job is a guy, you know, when you think about it, um, there was a guy named George Whitfield who used to say, people, when they think about the story of Job, they think, okay, it's the story of like this poor guy who you know who like suffers and loses everything. And George Whitfield used to say, actually, at the end of the day, the book of Job is about every single one of us. That every single one of us at the end of our life will lose everything. We will all, think about it, we will all give it all away. My son is going to get everything. When you die, you're going to give all your stuff away. I like to put it this way. We are all generous eventually. We may not be today. Oh, you'll be really generous at some point. And the reality is, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of people that are totally cool with Jesus borrowing their stuff. And this is one of the hardest parts about following Jesus because it means not just your money, your bodies, your minds, your souls, your relationships, everything. It ain't yours. You don't get to lock it up. It's all in a cubby. 
I also want you to see this. I want you to see that when Jesus comes over, and he's going to invite himself over, and when he does, you can be sure of this. He is always, every time, going to bring someone over that you don't like. Every time. He's going to show up, and you'll be like, I invited you over, and then all of a sudden, it's like, apparently plus one, Jesus. (laughs) Always bringing people over that I didn't invite over. Matthew's thrown a dinner party for Jesus, and somehow all these, quote, sinners just sort of plus one themselves into the, the meal. And then you've got the, tax, the, the, the religious leaders sitting outside, and they're like, who are you eating with? Why are you eating with? How, how, what's this all happening? And before you know it, Jesus is throwing this dinner party at someone else's house with people that you didn't invite, and you're the one cooking dinner. And it is all his plan. Every last bit of it. The Church of Jesus in America. We have basically become a society of people who just like hanging out with each other. And I I say this to say, I I may be ribbing us a little bit because I'm an American Christian, so I have some room to rip me. But we are really good at worshiping Jesus alongside people that we really like. And I would contend that we stink at worshiping along with the people that Jesus decided to bring over to our dinner party. I should point out to you, by the way, this is a really important facet of the ministry of Jesus. Matthew is a tax collector. Think about all the disciples. I love this. You look at all the, there's a, what a weird group of people. A tax collector. You got these two brothers. Uh, Jesus calls them the, the sons of thunder. They've apparently got emotional issues, haven't done their Enneagram. They don't know what kind of their, their deep internal strife is. You got, um, you know, you, you've got Peter, uh, Simon Peter. You got all, you, what a weird group, a fisherman and, and these I mean, people that would never like hang out in the normal world. You would never make a small group out of these people. There was like no like Bible project curriculum that could get these people to like talk to each other. Matthew is a tax collector. You know what that means? His job, he, 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 was, he, was, like the, he was like the big government guy. Like he wanted, he, he worked for the government. I, like he, he's an IRS agent. He's a, he's a tax collector. He worked for Rome. He had a vested interest in Rome doing awesome. He was super pro-Rome. And Jesus also calls a guy named Simon the Zealot. And you know who Simon the Zealot is? We, know, we don't know a lot about him, but we know this. He was not pro-Rome. And we know that because usually when your last name is Zealot, you're not pro-anything. <laughs> Simon the Zealot was like anti-government. He, went, he was like, you know what he is? Honestly, he's like an ancient Antifa member who wanted to bring, he just wanted to like bring the system down. Matthew's like the big government guy. He's like, hey, let's protect the system. Simon's like, let's bring the government down and protest and unionize, blah, blah, blah. And you gotta love that Jesus knew who he was calling and he said, Matthew, Simon, you guys hate each other, don't you? (laughs) You hate each other. And you know what? Come follow me. It's as though Jesus is saying, hey, why don't you follow me? Your politics, they're really cute. (laughs) But how about 
you leave it all behind and come follow me. We have become a church in America where tax collectors hang out with tax collectors and zealots hang out with zealots. And I got to say, in the name of Jesus, I don't think that's what he had in mind. I think Jesus created a church, a people, where we would be forced and compelled by the love of Christ to intentionally love people we don't like. Anne Lamott famously put it, you know that you've created God in your own image when God hates everyone that you hate. And the truth is, as Bob Goff would say, we tend to spend our life running away from the very people that Jesus is running towards. If you are a Christian and there is not another Christian in your life that you can't stand, I don't know if you're following Jesus yet. You need somebody who drives you mad, who makes you a deeper person. You know what, I often get asked by my students at the university, they say, how can I grow in Jesus? How can I become deeper? And here's my response, hang out with people that don't look like Jesus. And they make you really need to grow into the image of Jesus. The reality is, We've created a like verse, a like hangs out with like church. The church of Jesus is a radically subversive world where Matthew and Simon get to leave their politics at the door and follow Jesus together. Your politics are important. Don't miss me. But don't replace Jesus with your politics. And I want you to see this. I want you to see that Jesus, he gives everyone a whole new story. I remember reading this uh, this story at 16 years old. I'm sitting in my room. Thank God there was something else to read other than Leviticus. I've read Leviticus in my later years, and it's actually a really cool book. But um, when somebody says, I'm a new Christian, what's the first thing I should read? Don't say Leviticus. I sat in my room, and I read this story. It was the first story I ever read in which I sat and I wept, and I experienced the resurrected Jesus. I have spent the last 25 years of my life following this guy. It was the best decision I've ever made, and there's been no decision that has had more consequences for me, and I would say, on more ways than one, it has actually made my life a lot harder. It would be easier to not follow Jesus. Profoundly easier. It is easier to not follow somebody who says you've gotta love people you don't like. It is easier to follow somebody who's not always inviting themselves into your house. It is easy to not follow somebody who asks you to be generous and kind and merciful. It is really hard to submit your life to someone greater than yourself. But friends, when you are the end and the means and the whole story and the telos, when you're the center, that is hell. We need someone bigger than ourselves to follow. C.S. Lewis used to talk about the gospel, the message of Jesus, as finding a part in a symphony that's been lost for centuries, that you've been listening to this song and part of it was cut out, and then all of a sudden, the part that's been missing is put back in, and, and then all of a sudden, you get it and you understand why you were made, why you were made. 
Why did God create the Garden of Eden? Did God make the Garden of Eden because he needed more vegetables? No, God didn't have a carrot issue. He didn't need more eggplant. He made a Garden of Eden not because he needed more vegetables. God made a Garden of Eden because God loves being our coworkers. He loves getting in the dirt with you. He wants you. 16 years old, sat in my room, and I encountered the grace of Jesus. It's a little bit like this. I was in high school. I was in two Shakespeare's. Uh, I was in uh, one that was called As You Like It. I had, my, the, my name of my character in the play, and this will tell you how important that my character was in the story. I was called Forest Lord Number Two. <laughs> integral feature, integral part of the narrative of As You Like It. I had one line. Indeed, my lord. Thy melancholy, I don't even, the, the line doesn't make sense. Doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. I don't, I'm not even going to say it to you. Shakespeare. Did you know Shakespeare wrote two kinds of genres? What are the genres? He wrote comedies. That's right, tragedies. Do you know the difference between a comedy and tragedy? There's only one difference. The end. <laughs> you know what happens in the end? In a comedy, the end is always a wedding. A tragedy always ends in a suicide. What happened to me at 16 years old is my genre changed. I went from being a tragedy to being a comedy. And the end, friends, the middle is still as hard no matter how you plug it out. It's hard. The middle is hard. What changes is your future. And what changes is your end. The middle is hard no matter what, but the end is changed. I flew here from Oregon to tell you that the same Jesus that did that to me at 16 is the same Jesus in this room, and it's the same Jesus that wants to revive our souls this week. Can you believe that?